So good evening, everyone. We've um, been traveling on this journey of liberative dependent arising, and there are there were three different qualities of joy and happiness: pamoja, that sense of delight; piti, rapt attention, meditative joy; and sukha, the happy content mind that helped us move into concentration. And this evening, I'd like to talk about mudita, which is empathetic joy. It's the third of the Brahma-viharas. And mudita is a relational practice. So not just about awakening for ourselves, but finding joy in the joy of others for the benefit of all beings. And the Buddha called it the mind to the deliverance of gladness. The mind deliverance of gladness because it's the force of happiness that liberates. So it's a really beautiful um, part of our practice that's often not deeply appreciated, taught, or practiced. And this joy comes simply from wishing others to be happy, that their joy and happiness might increase. So it challenges our assumptions about lack, about loneliness, about loss, and about happiness. So it's really powerful in that way. Shantideva says, whatever joy there is in this world all comes from wanting others to be happy. Whatever suffering there is in this world comes from wanting only myself to be happy. And when we look into the mind and heart, and we look outward at the world, we can see the destructive power of ill will and how it leeches joy from our lives, creates estrangement, creates alienation, divisiveness, and it stifles that capacity for connection, compassion, and um, respect. Ill will creates so much suffering in the world. In the Metta Sutta, the Buddha says, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. And the safety comes from our metta practice, and also from compassion. And the gladness practice is an important balancing quality because it helps us be with the suffering in our lives without getting so overwhelmed, exhausted, and despairing. Because there can be a tendency for our practice and our lives to get kind of grim. And we need to lighten up without losing our spiritual um, and ethical life. The Dharma, the path of the Dharma, is meant to include all of who we are, the beauty as well as 
the difficulties and the ethical trainings. To become whole, to appreciate all of who we are. That's why I love the phrases I shared with you the other afternoon. How wonderful you are in your being. I delight that you are here. May your joy and happiness continue. I take joy in your good fortune. So it's that celebration. And even though we can think that the Buddha, well, well, it's true, the Buddha's encouraging us to really deeply understand the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, to deeply understand that. But as Christina Feldman says, it's not meant to be a miserable path to the deepest misery. There's supposed to be happiness in the path. And it's possible to have joy on the path to happiness. Ayakima says, you can't get to awakening without passing through the gates of joy. So it brings that lightness. And it's the antidote to ill will and aversion. So we want to lighten up and yet not deny the significance of suffering and difficulty in our lives. To be able to meet it, but not drown in it. Um, Many years ago, I was teaching a women's retreat, um, and there was someone there who was having a great deal of difficulty in her life, and so her practice was serious and at times grim, and it seemed that... um, at times overwhelming for her. And we were doing metta practice and some mudita. And at the end of the retreat, we had a circle amongst us and people shared their experiences. And she was an older woman and she looked very serious. And she stood up and she went to the middle of the circle and she began to sing. Metta is better than dukkha. Come on, everybody, Anicca. <laughs> and she had everybody there going along with her. Meta is better. <laughs> and you could see the joy that went around the circle. <laughs> and uh, you just don't know what's... what's um, metabolizing for people. (laughs) (laughs) However, it's not just about achieving a beautiful, happy state. But it is, just like metta, a purifying practice. It is deeply healing to these really unpleasant states of envy and jealousy and demeaning and... um, inadequacy, prejudice, greed, all those things, the ways that we can limit ourselves and each other and whole groups of people with that, those difficult mind states. And because of that, because there are those things that it can sometimes bring to the surface, 
it's said to be the most difficult of the Brahma-viharas to practice because it's so easy for these states to come up when we're doing it. And it is a very powerful antidote to both attachment and aversion. And that's why the Buddha described it as the force of happiness that liberates. There's a force in it that moves us through these difficult states. Sometimes it's said that it's a rare human experience to have this pure joy in the success and joy in others because we so easily go to comparing mind or envy or some form of it. And at the same time, as our practice develops on our retreat, we get more capacity for non-attachment, less stickiness with self-absorption, it all starts to diminish. And then mudita naturally begins to arise and to reveal itself. And we begin to enjoy a greater happiness when we notice the happiness of others. And it's a beautiful state. I'd like to talk about some of these blocks or the near and far enemies of mudita that um, it's so important to recognize and to allow to be um, healed. The near one is sometimes sentimentality and sometimes um, an over-exuberance, that kind of bouncy energy that can come when we feel a lot of joy. Years ago, before Spirit Rock was built, we used to sit at a retreat center called Santa Sabina that I'm sure some of you know. And this was an, they called it the old students retreat in those days. And um, one morning, as when we had our instruction and there was a notice about mindful walking and being respectful and mindful in our walking in the buildings because the dormers were kind of above us. And just at the end of the teacher saying that, there was someone who had missed the sit, going thump, 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 bang, and the door closed, thump, 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 (laughs) and another door closed. And um, everybody started laughing. And so then the laughter calmed down, and there was another thump, thump, thump. And then somebody started giggling. And you know what can happen when that happens. <laughs> Within several minutes, the whole room was caught in this over-exuberance of giggling. And then we'd all try and get it together, be this drawn-in breath. <gasps> and then there'd be this huge snort <laughs> of escaped laughter. And so that's the exuberance. <laughs> and you can feel that energy bubbling. And so I have to watch as I'm talking (laughs) that that doesn't happen and I get caught in the near enemy, you know, and feel the energy ground and settle. And so it, it feels lovely, but it's also not very grounded and kind of giddy. Sometimes the near enemy is sort of ego based. Um, you we're happy for someone if it's going to benefit us. And that would be like a parent 
being over-identified with their child's success. So when I was growing up, my father had um, a work associate who would come to the house and he would talk about his son and all the wonderful things his son had done. And he would begin every sentence with, my boy Paul. And so my brother and I would always say, oh, oh, my boy Paul's coming over today. (laughs) And we still, to this day, anyone who does that, we'll say, oh, he or she is a my boy Paul. (laughs) But it's that um, where we're, it's not really so much about the other person. It's more about us. So it's attached to um, us rather than being freely given. The other way the near enemy operates is that um, perhaps we're reflecting on good things, on good qualities that we have. Or maybe we've had a good experience on retreat and we're remembering that. And suddenly there's the conceit, I am. I'm the wonderful one. (laughs) Rather than, I'm so happy this happened. I'm the one this happened to. And that's also a near enemy. Um, Another brief story, another retreat. Like many of you, um, I was sitting outside waiting to have an interview with a teacher and rehearsing what I was going to say. And I'd had some deep experience and uh, I was, you know, feeling really happy and, you know, good about this. And then... I had closed my eyes and I had an image of this giant chicken sitting on a wall. And it was going, I'm so great, I'm so great, I'm so great. (laughs) It was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden it kind of sort of lifted off like a balloon and it went (laughs) and disappeared into the distance. And I had to laugh, you know. But um, our minds are very good at <laughs> catching when we're caught in, in that kind of conceit. So that's the near enemy. The far enemies, um, two of the main ones are envy and jealousy. And sometimes we use those terms interchangeably, but they're actually different. When we're jealous, it's as though we have something, but we don't want someone else to have it. So a partner might be jealous of people looking at their mate or suspicious that their mate is having an affair. They're jealous and possessive of that person. Or a child might have a a bunch of toys and be playing happily with one and not with others. Another child comes in and takes a toy they haven't cared about for months, and all of a sudden, that's mine. So it's that kind of possessiveness that's the um, far enemy. Envy is when um, we want things that other people have. So it's kind of the, the um, opposite thing. Um, we don't, there's a feeling of inadequacy. There's inadequacy with the other one too. There's lack. I don't have, and you have something else I want. Um, There was, um, I guess I don't remember how long ago it was, um, a scientific study they did with capuchin monkeys. Um, And the monkeys were, um, you know, doing little 
tricks or whatever it was. And on the completion of this particular trick, um, the monkey was given a cucumber. And it was very happy with its cucumber and ate the cucumber right up. And then the next day, it noticed that the monkey next to it, instead of being given a cucumber, was given a grape. And grapes are much more prized than cucumbers. So when the trainer came over to this monkey, the monkey's all excited because now expects a grape, but is given a cucumber. And it looks at the cucumber in disbelief. You've got to be kidding. (laughs) And it picks up the cucumber and it hurls it at the trainer and screams in frustration. And it's a really primal thing, this not fairness. When something's not fair, it's a really fundamental thing. And um, there's an instinctual thing about it that um, inequality is stressful and uncomfortable and um, damaging to a society when there's inequality all over the place. It's a really basic human need to have that. Um, and at the same time, just as that, there's that instinct for they've got, you know, he got the bigger one or the nicer one or whatever it was, there's also that instinctual joy in others' joy. You can take a two-year-old to the park, which sometimes I do, and put them in the swing, and you do some silly little thing, and they start shrieking with laughter. Someone else comes, puts another two-year-old in the swing next, next to it, and pretty soon, every time the first one shrieks with laughter, the other one does too. And then they begin to share that joy together the joy in each other's joy. It's a natural um, thing for us to do. In the same way that there's this fundamental thing about fairness, wanting things to be fair. However, the comparing mind, which is a lot of what envy is about, is so painful because we, it touches so many places. Um, I think this is from one of the text, Tibetan texts. Um, envy towards the above, competitive towards the equal, and contempt towards the lower are all to be avoided. So those are all the ways that it catches us. And one of the very, very early Buddhist women, Buddhist nuns, Abhirupa Nanda, she says, let go of the tendency to compare above, below, or equal to others. If you let go of this comparing, you will have peace. So it's any kind. And it's that um, looking for per- per- perfection that blocks joy. That sense of not enough. There's something not right. We have to have enough. And um, I love that cartoon that I think was from the New Yorker probably a long time ago, where there's this dog looking up at its master and saying, how come it's only ever good dog? Why is it never best dog? <laughs> And so it's that need to be (laughs) seen enough, 
special enough. And practicing mudita challenges this self-centeredness and separation. This sense of, may you all be happy, but only after I've been successful first. (laughs) That kind of tendency. It sees joy as limitless. And um, that jealousy and envy come from a perceived sense of lack and inadequacy that's so prevalent. And it's easy to practice mudita to begin with in nature, um, to resonate with it, because it's difficult to feel competitive with nature. <laughs> you can appreciate the beauty what, of whatever's you around you and really wish it well and resonate with that. You can really feel that strongly in nature and open into interconnectedness and non-separation more easily. And that so sitting in nature is a blessing and healing because we're taking in and appreciating the joy and the beingness of nature without getting triggered so easily. I'd just like to talk a little bit about my own journey with comparing mind because it's certainly been um, a long one. (laughs) And um, I remember when I very first early Dharma talks I gave and I was teaching with one other teacher and sitting there and they gave the first talk and I was listening to the first talk and they were saying a lot of the things that I'd been going to say only much better than I could ever have said them. And so I was starting to shrink and feel more and more inadequate. (laughs) And I wasn't, I could see that I wasn't really enjoying the talk or enjoying the appreciation of the people who were listening to the talk. And I saw how comparing mind and inadequacy were so damaging and harmful. And so I really began to pay attention to it more and look at what was underneath it and that sense of inadequacy that could so quickly get triggered. And um, I remember meeting Yvonne Rand, who was um, an elder in the Zen tradition. And she was talking about, I think, narcissism, you know, and the I'm so great. And she said, but it's also about being, saying, I'm the little piece of shit that's the center of the universe. And so there's that way (laughs) that it's so much I-focused when we're focused on my inadequacies and my whatever it is. And so that was really helpful to just see that um, it was just as um, um, limiting. Both were equally limiting. And I had a very good friend, still do, who's a wonderful teacher for me, Um, We went to medical school together. We subsequently opened a practice together. We shared having kids together. And we meditate together. We've had a long, over 30-year journey together. And um, she has a tendency to shine and be successful. And was very easy for me me to feel all those levels. (laughs) Um, 
envy towards the above, competitive towards the equal, <laughs> and at times I never felt contempt. I didn't do that one, but the other two sh- certainly. And so it was a good teacher. And um, once I was sitting a retreat with her, and I knew that things were really opening and unfolding for her, and we had more, there was a little more interaction in this retreat, and so I would hear what was happening for her. And I could really see this um, comparing mind and envy, and she'll be seen and I won't be seen. I saw that was underneath it. Oh, it's about I need to be seen. Oh, it's about I want to be more special than she is. I want to be the most special. I saw the mind state that wanted to be the most special. And as I watched that mind state without judgment, you know, it became this, I want to be the most special. It it dissolved. And then I felt like, oh, Everyone is equally special. Everyone in this room is equally special. And then I thought, oh, that means I'll never be special. (laughs) More special. (laughs) All this work for all these years (laughs) is pointless. (laughs) Um, But it actually was a really, really wonderful teaching. I mean, of course, one has to revisit it over and over, but it did really stay with me, that sense of all being equally special. Um, And so, um, continuing to practice with that, um, and to practice with the comparing mind. And then on a retreat I did more recently, there were several teachers sitting the retreat, and I noticed at times, that when I would walk by them or walk into the room, this thought would begin to arise, oh, they're sitting for longer than me, I bet they're having much more profound experiences than me, and it would begin, and I would catch it, and I would begin to do, to do medita practice. I would say to myself, um, may your practice bring you joy and freedom. And all of a sudden, there'd be all this warmth that would take the place of the comparing mind. May your practice bring you joy and freedom. May your love in the Dharma increase and never leave you. And it just felt so beautiful to say that. And it really um, dissolved that comparing and beginning to see this is not personal. It's not about me. Whenever there's a holding on to an experience as mine or theirs, then there's a possibility for inadequacy or lack. When that dissolves, it's just mudita. We're all in that space. And it's it's limitless joy. There's no lack. Joy is limitless. Metta is limitless. And so touching into that space is so freeing. And then spontaneously, there was the beginning, whenever I was experiencing a moment of joy, may everyone here experience joy. May everyone's practice unfold into joy for them. And that, there was joy in doing, in offering that. May the merits of my practice be a gift to everyone. 
And again, it didn't feel like my practice. It felt like I got out of the way. It was just, may the merits of all of our practice bring us all freedom. And just this universal um, liberation for all of us that wasn't limited or contracted. And then our practices, the Brahma Viharas, do become abundant, exalted, immeasurable. And we have that sense of how limitless it is. And everything can be pervaded with it. And they are then divine abidings. And so, then back to a moment, for a moment, to some of the difficulties. <laughs> so we go back and forth, because that's how our practice is, as you know. It goes like this. <laughs> there's moments of freedom, and then there's moments of being caught again. Another way of getting caught with mudita is that we, um, it's a kind of demeaning thing where rather than celebrating the good fortune of others, we feel satisfied when we hear about their misfortune. Because if something, if something difficult is happening to them and they're not happy, then there's more happiness for me. So it's as though happiness is a limited resource or whatever it is is a limited resource. And if they're not doing so well, then I can feel better. <laughs> and that's um, um, a block to full mudita. When we share, it puts us in touch with the fact that um, mudita is a source that's limitless because it's moving through rather than it is limited. And then any time we get caught in judging really drains away the possibility for joy, whether it's directed to ourselves or others or the world. We get caught looking through a certain kind of glasses. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with whoever or whatever it is. And when we're in that place, it can be really hard to practice mudita. It feels impossible sometimes to be able to connect with any sense of goodness about ourselves or with any sense of goodness about somebody else. We can't find any good qualities anywhere. What do you mean, look for good qualities? You know, with just feeling negative. And so that's when compassion and metta are really supportive. The three Brahma-viharas, metta, mudita, and karuna, are very much supportive of each other. And so when we find ourselves in a place where there isn't an access seemingly to mudita, we can just let ourselves be supported. Just, oh, inadequacy is painful. And just have that softness and tenderness that can hold it. Grumpiness is really unpleasant. So we're allowing, this is how it is right now. Rather than, oh, I should find joy in everybody's joy. It is how it is. And so there's compassion for that. Similarly, when we're in pain, compassion for the pain. And yet, practicing mudita 
for ourselves and for others when we or they are in pain is actually a really helpful and beautiful thing to do. Because it's possible, even when there's difficulty, like a, deep, like a pain or even sometimes emotional pain, although I find it harder with emotional pain, to focus on some aspect of our or their being that is beautiful or wholesome. Their courage, their patience, their um, willingness just to be. And um, how beautiful, how wonderful you are in your being. So we're connecting with just their being that's irrespective of whatever else is happening. So we can be there for each other even when there's pain. And um, I, um, I know of this um, center called Kalanish in Vancouver, which is, um, which is set up for people with terminal cancer and whose family, who are family members of people with terminal cancer. And they meet together, they meditate together, they have groups, they do art, music, poetry together. And they celebrate each other. And it's a beautiful way of taking joy in the preciousness of the lives that they have. And I've been so moved by the stories people who've been there have told me. How much joy they've found through others' joy. Even though they all know that their lives are not very long celebration in so many different ways. And also through humor. They share the most awful jokes (laughs) that, you know, people who didn't have cancer wouldn't dream of saying with them. But they have no holds barred. (laughs) And so they can be as crazy as they like and laugh at themselves and laugh at death and laugh at all those things. And it's, it's very healing. Um, I had a patient who had, um, she'd had um, metastatic cancer and now had a brain tumor and didn't have much longer to live. But she had meditated with a, a group that I had for people with illness. And she wanted to keep coming, even though um, she was very, very ill. Her caregivers would bring her the palliative care nurses and she would lie on the floor in the middle of our circle and we would do metta and mudita for her. And after two or three minutes, she'd start to snore really loudly. And people would laugh, and she would know that that was happening. But there was just this sense of so much love and affection and joy in the room. Just this um, knowing that to the very end of her life, she could receive this kind of attention and um possibility of being held. And I learned so much from her and from how people were with her. And then one more story on a similar vein, another of the groups I had, just because I think it it really demonstrates the strength and the beauty of this practice. 
there was this was a different group, and there was a woman who came who'd had a long history of very severe depression for which she'd been hospitalized, and the doctors were unsure that she she was would be able to do she wasn't too fragile for the group and in the same group, there were two young women um new mothers who were dealing with anxiety and poor self image and in the group. Um, people would get together in small groups, and they um, they formed a group with her, these two young women, and they would share their stories in a very natural and normal way, and if she didn't speak, that was fine. And one week they were laughing about how one of them, for years, had not gone to the swimming pool because she was af- so afraid of being seen in a bathing suit and that she would be humiliated. And finally, she'd had the courage to do it. And so she'd come in, and she had so much joy and laughing. She'd overcome this, and what a wonderful time she'd had. And for the first time, this older woman smiled and laughed with them. And um, by the end of the series, the 12-week series, she was laughing and smiling again, just because these two young women had shared with her in that way and included her. There's, there's an inclusivity that comes with this um, sharing the goodness, sharing the simple appreciation of each other um, that's possible for us. The um, constraints of self really block our capacity to feel mudita. This story of me, all the assumptions and beliefs and who and what we are and who and what others are, the fixed ideas we have about ourselves and each other that limit possibility. All our misperceptions do. And sometimes because of that, we're unable to connect with our own goodness or we're unable to connect with a that in another. Or we're unable to see how the way we're behaving is um, causing another to lose connection with uh, their goodness. And so mudita is a really powerful way of helping dissolve some of those barriers, helping us see the way that we hold who we are can block that capacity for um, joy goodness. Lily Tomlin says, maintaining a self-image is painful. It's the major cause of stress. I always wanted to be somebody. I guess I should have been more specific. (laughs) So (laughs) we can forget (laughs) this wanting to be somebody, how much it gets in the way of our happiness. And the less caught we are, the less identified, the more we can laugh at that, the more we can not get so tied up and serious about it. And instead of shock or disgust at seeing some behavior that we judge or some mistake that we've made, we can, we can um, wow, look at that one. That was a really big mistake. That was a really big screw-up but not so caught in taking it personally and have the capacity to not lose touch with that 
inherent being, that inherent goodness. Not be moved out into becoming the bad one, the guilty one, the wrong one. That stop us from connecting. Ajahn Sumedho says, When the heart is free of illusions of self, there arises a loving quality in the pure joy of being. Without expectation of being anything or being anybody, nor the expectation of anything lasting or being permanent. Joy in just being. This moment. Once we are free from that illusion, love is ever-present. It's just that we can't see it or enjoy it when we're blinded by desire or aversion. And when we understand that, faith increases and there's a willingness to let go, a willingness to give things up. And there's a real joy in being with things the way they are. So the less clinging there is to ideas about self, the more the barriers dissolve between us and others. The more we can realize this inherent wholeness. And even as I'm talking now, you might sense some of the inner barriers dissolving. Just releasing the illusions of self. The sense that we're not separate inside. We're not divided off into all these antagonistic committees. (laughs) But there's this sense of wholeness. And what supports that is a direct experience of joy in just being and the unconditional love of metta, the fullness of being. So when we say how wonderful I am in my being or how wonderful someone is in their being, There's an opening into just the joy of being that isn't dependent on any particular quality. It's unlimited. There's no need to be anything or become anything. And it's very freeing and open. In fact, um, after the guided mudita um, the other day, I was walking down to tea and how wonderful it is just being. Just being. How wonderful it is just being. There's delight in being here. And in having... Um, um, and there's joy in good fortune. So it, it's just that letting go of self that opens it up to this limitless place. How wonderful being is. How wonderful all these beings are. And delighting in that. We're not separate from life 
or from each other. And there's this delight in the immediacy of that, the aliveness. And there's a joy in having identities dissolve. It's so freeing. The mind causes so much suffering. It causes suffering by the identities that some that are put on us by society. The ways we're limited or reduced by how we've been seen by others are so limiting. And to reclaim and enter into this wholeness and joy of fully being is such a gift. And um, it allows us to... Mudita um, brings the joy to compassion that enables the active part of compassion. So it brings that energy that enables compassion to move into the action to carry out the values that we believe in in the world. And compassion prevents the joy from getting either too bubbly or um, moving into the near and far enemies. It supports that. And the mudita, in turn, helps us when we're lost in overwhelm. So it balances compassion that way. So all three of them support each other. Metta, the boundlessness and friendliness. Both. So the supports for mudita in our practice are paying wise, kind attention, just as we do with our mindfulness, the sense of presence. And as Ajahn Suchito beautifully said the other night, an unrelenting patience with all our ups and downs and with all the mind states that are so sticky. And to notice that we have a tendency, both on practice and in our daily lives, to move quickly into the next event and to bypass the joy that's here, to bypass the beautiful qualities that are here and not really appreciate them, to not appreciate our moments of stillness or equanimity or... um, um, Kindness, clarity. So when we practice in that kind of way, the flow of presence becomes stronger and all the qualities strengthen and there's more capacity for joy. And that trust leads to a deeper joy. The more confidence and the more faith, the more joyous the practice is. There's less worry and doubt and so more joy. And we can receive every kind of experience with interest. We're less dependent on things being a certain way, more resilient. And that's a really important quality to be able to take into our lives, this resilience and capacity, and capacity to find joy and beauty in the people around us. And to be able to laugh at ourselves and laugh at our delusions, take ourselves less seriously, 
like the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, who so beautifully have that capacity to laugh at themselves. And to have and recognize the people in our lives that inspire joy because of the way they express it. For me, growing up, the person I most um, admired was David Attenborough. I love nature. And to see him and his joy at people and places and nature, and that still in his 80s there's that same delight and complete engagement and presence with living things. And I wanted to be just like him. (laughs) And then I have a very dear friend who um, I shared teaching um, Biology 101 many years ago, and she has that same joy in nature. And we have that together, and to this day we share it. That same delight in in life and in living beings. And our confession um, that seems to be want to being told is that we were supposed to um, prepare these frogs um, to have these particular experiment done on them. Pithing frogs, some of you may remember that from high school biology or something. And we really didn't want to do that. We thought demonstration of one frog that will be sacrificed is enough. So the night before it was supposed to happen, we went down to the botanical gardens and we liberated all the frogs. (laughs) So so we had delight in (laughs) the frog's freedom. May you be happy, frogs. (laughs) Hopefully they were. So there's that um, appreciation and delight in others. And we can say, there is goodness, may there be joy. Wherever we are, there is goodness, may there be joy. And reflecting on acts of generosity also is a powerful way of expressing mudita. Um, Because so often we don't um, can take the time to really um, take that in and to share that with others. Um, to share that gratitude. There was um, a woman who we'd been doing gratitude practices and um, she really liked it. She was a single parent with a um, young daughter and she was a hospital administrator, very, very busy, came home. Her daughter wanted to invite a, girl, a girlfriend over for a dinner and a sleepover and she's thinking, oh my God, I'm so tired, I don't feel like cooking. But then she thought, well, you know, um, they really want to be together and, you know, I want them to be happy. And she knew this girl's parents, the father had a very serious illness and it was stressful for the family. So she thought, okay, I'll do it. She was tired. And then during the dinner, she began to enjoy their conversation and their laughter and their, the way they were friendly and warm with each other. And she really enjoyed the evening. And then as she was lying in bed, she thought, oh, I want to share this happiness. So she wrote a letter, an email, to the girl's mother, and she said, um, I just wanted to tell you 
what a fabulous job I think you're doing of parenting. Your daughter is such a lovely young woman. And the next day she got a letter back that said, you made my day. I'd been feeling so tired and so despondent and feeling inadequate. And I just feel so different. Thank you so much. And so we never know when just that impulse to share and appreciate how it can go back and forth and bring happiness. Joanna Macy talks about balancing the balancing effect of gratitude practices. And some of you who may have done her work know that she does this practice where people talk about all the things that they're grateful for. Something I'm grateful for is. And they're able to really build resilience with that. And then they're able to allow the feelings out of what they're grieving for in the earth, whatever it is. And so we need that resource of gratitude, mudita, um, capacity, to be able to be with what's here. It's so supportive for each for ourselves and each other to do that. Um, there was um, an inner city teacher um, on the East Coast that I met, a woman who was um, doing mindfulness groups with people, with um, people, women in very, very difficult situations. And they, um, between them, evolved the gratitude alphabet. And they would go around the room. And one of them would say, I'm grateful for apples. I'm grateful for bananas. I'm grateful for caterpillars, etc., etc. And so they would go around through the whole alphabet, and by the end they'd just be laughing. And just silly little things that they were grateful for. And so they did it every week. And there was always a way of connecting with that possibility for joy. When we start looking at everything that's wrong, we need to balance it. And to share positive stories, too, of things that are going right in the world. Um, in, in BC, where I'm from, there's a lot of concern, as some of you probably know, about pipelines and want people wanting to put tankers through the Georgia Strait. And so many of the communities are very concerned about what that will do to fishing and all sorts of things in the ecosystem. And some of the children are also afraid, but don't have a way of expressing their feelings. And so some teenage, late teenage, late teen young men who were just graduating from high school, they had a band, they had a you know, group, music group together, and they decided they really wanted to address that. So they formed what they called the Jellyfish Project. And they would go to schools, and they would play music about what was going on, and the children would sing, and then they'd form groups about what the children might do to address some of the environmental issues. But they were bringing joy in the form of music, which enabled the kids to allow their feelings out. Because of the lightness that the music gave them, there was more sense of safety to say what their fears were and to talk about it together. 
And so there are so many beautiful things going on in the world to be celebrated. So just that we really need the balancing of mudita. So through opening to joy, we learn to let go because the joy helps us trust more and feel safe. And we can travel more lightly and we can live in more harmony in the world and be able to be with some of the difficulties that we face. And I'd like to end with this beautiful quote from Muhammad Ali. And this is what he says. He wants, this is how he wanted people to think about him. I'd like for them to say he took a few cups of love, one tablespoon of patience, one tablespoon of generosity, one pint of kindness. He took one quart of laughter, one pinch of concern, and then he mixed willingness with happiness. He added lots of faith, and he stirred it up well. And then he spreads it over his span of a lifetime, and he serves it to each and every person he met. So, bows to Muhammad Ali. And let's sit for a moment. How wonderful you are in your being. I delight that you are here. I take joy in your good fortune. May your joy and happiness never cease. May it lead to freedom. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.